This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is CT Media. Throughout the production of this podcast, there were a handful of people we really hoped would talk to us, both inside and outside of Mars Hill. Near the top of that list was Dr. Timothy Keller. Tim's the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which he planted in 1989 and where he served until 2017. He's also the co-founder of City to City, a nonprofit focused on training pastors and planting churches in global cities. To date, they've helped plant more than 800 churches. He's the author of several best-selling books, and he's considered an authority on church planting. But I think his greatest impact, and the thing most people know him for, is his preaching. It's not flashy, no Ferraris on stage, no yelling. It's sober, even professorial. But what he's demonstrated for 30 years is a way of reading and understanding the world and community around him wrestling with the ideas of skeptics and critics, and demonstrating that the gospel has a way of answering our questions and meeting our deepest needs. You see why elder brother lostness and younger brother lostness are both terrible. Younger brother lostness with its self-indulgence and its addiction, it brings a lot of misery into the world. But elder brother lostness, you can see it. Look at his anger. He's always angry. Why is he angry? Because he's lived such a good life that God, the Father, owes him to do things his way. And of course, since your life never, except for a few years at a time, ever goes the way you want, if you're living a good life because you think that therefore I deserve a good life, you're always going to have an undercurrent of anger. You're always going to be looking down on other people. According to Jesus' definition, religion is the source of a tremendous amount of misery and strife in this world. I wanted to talk to Tim for two reasons. First, because of his connections to Mark Driscoll. Their ministries intersected at two significant moments, first in the 90s when Driscoll was just starting out, and then almost a decade later when Keller was the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition with D.A. Carson. Second, though, is a larger question. Tim pastored Redeemer for almost three decades and has had a front row seat to witness the leadership crisis that we're talking about on this series. I wanted to hear him reflect on it to talk about where he thinks things have gone wrong, and to ask about how he's guarded his own life and character in the midst of it. It's important to mention that for two years, Tim has been battling pancreatic cancer. This conversation was recorded in early May, and in the time since, that battle has continued, including some particularly difficult moments. I'm incredibly grateful that Tim made time for this conversation. And all of us here at CT join his family, friends, and the community at Redeemer in praying for his restored health and strength. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I'm Mike Cosper, and today's episode is an in-depth conversation with Tim Keller.
I know you were around Spanish River when Mark kind of first showed up. So you had a perspective on this sort of all the way through. I'd love to hear you just reflect on the story. I mean, what were some of your first impressions with Mark and how did you end up involved, you know, connected with him more deeply as he came into TGC? Well, the Spanish River Network, which was started by David Nicholas, has actually done a lot of a lot of good. He's done it's it's planted a lot of churches. And what David looked for was his own understanding of dynamic leadership. It meant decisive, vision caster. I mean, he had a whole list. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to find those most dynamic leaders and, in a sense, privilege them, promote them, fund them, give them the freedom to get out there and do their thing. And he started that largely, it was largely a PCA, Presbyterian Church in America thing. He then took those of us that he decided that we were leaders and he funded us, and then he would get us together every year back at Spanish River for their big missions conference. That was a big, big, big deal. He was frustrated, though, with those of us that he funded for this reason. He wanted very much to create a network that he called X-29. That was his name. What he wanted was, he said, I want these, these great churches, these churches that are growing with these great leaders, and I want them to put 10% of their income every year into a uh, a pot, and then we're going to go out and get other leaders, and we're going to we're going to just plant churches everywhere. And the reason why all of us always pushed back on that was this: I said, David, you don't have a vision for any particular place or any particular kind of church. So, for example, when you plant a church in New York City, you have a vision for planting other churches in New York City. David didn't actually have a working philosophy of the kind of church he wanted, and th- that was actually good because he never controlled you. Well, if he thought you were doing well or he thought you were a good leader, he just, he, he was very interesting. He was not controlling at all. He just stood, stood back. But if I could criticize him, I would say it was almost like he made an idol out of, you know, the dynamic leader. It was like, if you're the dynamic leader, I don't care what you want to do. I'll fund it. And because none of us wanted to create that, what we would consider a nondescript church planning network that just basically funded the, you know, top dog, big, big dog kind of people who could plant big churches. And we really wanted to have our own movements in particular places with bigger churches, smaller churches. Also, David liked big churches, of course. That's when Mark Driscoll and, and other friends were brought in. I remember the, the year that uh, they brought, he brought them in, he started funding them, and we were displaced basically. Hmm. The older Presbyterian guys who he had funded over the years, that he brought us down there and put us on a platform and showed us around. He dropped us. Not, not, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't all that bad in a way because most of us wanted to kind of move on and he really went after hot shots. He went people that were, were brash, that were, that David liked that. Mm-hmm. And so Mark actually just utterly fit the bill. So there was an overlap of a year, I think, or maybe two even, where he, he was there and we were there, but then we were dropped, basically. So I, I, I've had people tell me, you know, you platform Mark Driscoll, because you can talk about TGC later on, but the point is I was displaced by Mark Driscoll. It leads to a, a question, actually, for me, because that would have been the sort of late 90s, 97, 98, something like that, I think. And I'm curious... 
because yeah. you had gone to seminary, you had been in ministry for, you know, I guess to, to clarify your background too, might be, might, might be helpful. You pastored for, was it 10 years before you planted Redeemer? Is that correct? Well, actually, I, I pastored for nine years, and then I taught at Westminster Seminary for five. Because there's a major kind of sea change that happens starting in the mid-late 1980s, you know, but by the late 90s, it's really humming in terms of the way evangelical churches kind of think about leadership in general, right? I mean, yeah. <clears throat> the, this is the day of Bill Hybels and Jack Welch is talking about what a great leader he is. And so the, the, the models are shifting pretty dramatically. How were you processing that shift in sort of language and emphasis at the time? Well, with, first of all, with roll, ro- rolling my eyes, <laughs> right. um, two things. One is I don't fit that mold, actually. I'm a good preacher, but I'm not that dynamic a leader. Actually, David Nicholas told me, in the beginning, he was worried about me because I said, you're much more of a professor and, you know, you don't seem like you're going to be a strong enough leader. And on the other hand, I'm a Presbyterian. And actually, Presbyterians, the Presbyterian churches can be big, but if you ever notice, there's not lots. I mean, you know, some people say, well, Sinclair Ferguson and Tim Keller are kind of the only Presbyterian celebrities. And that might be true. I mean, right now. And if you're going to call celebrities, and that's usually because of books. But what made what you know what made me a quote unquote celebrity was my books, not this fact that I had a big church because lots of people have big churches. But we're more there's more accountability in a Presbyterian setting. So I'll just tell you a quick story, which is true. Um, one Presbytery in my denomination heard either rumors or also heard things I'd said online about creation, evolution, Adam and Eve, and stuff like that. In our denomination, I do believe in a, there was an actual Adam and Eve, specially created by God, from whom we descend. There was either online chatter or things I said that made this presbytery feel like, I don't think he believes in a real Adam and Eve. I think he's a thoroughgoing evolutionist, and that wouldn't fit in with our confessional standards. And so five times they wrote my presbytery and asked them to examine me. And the reason my presbytery has to examine me on this if they didn't, then our denomination has a situation in which there's a standing judicial commission, and my my presbytery could actually say, because Tim Keller's presbytery has failed to act, we want you to assume original jurisdiction. See? Now, this is a very different world than the evangelical world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so I know that uh, every time they wrote, they say, please examine him by asking him this question. So... The Presbytery got me together. That means other elders, uh, Presbyteries, pastors, and and ruling elders from all the churches in our region. And they examined me and sent back my answers. And it was was fine. So they had another question. Uh, Five times it happened. And they were, you know, they were trying to get at it. Uh, I I would say the the fourth or fifth time I was starting to say, come on, but (laughs) I'm a Presbyterian. And um, Mm -hmm. this, this is... Now you couldn't do that to Mark Driscoll. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that to Bill Hyde. Yeah, there's no there's no structure for there's it. There's no structure for, sure. for it. Yeah, and um, there there really is accountability. Yeah. So in other words, if I'm if I step out or or if I'm abusive, and somebody in my church complains, there's a presbytery 
that presbytery could exonerate me, but then anybody, any one person can complain to General Assembly, Standing Judicial Commission, and they would look at it. And um, it doesn't, it's not perfect. Sure. Not at all. And yet, at the same time, there was a kind of a, so the fact I'm Presbyterian, the fact that I just don't like that style at all, which you can probably tell right here. That's why I always, it, I held my nose and uh, overall, generally speaking, even at Redeemer, Redeemer ended up being a five or 6,000 person church. And we can talk about that. There are real, real pressures that I do understand right. on why the big, the big church, regardless, Mike, of whether or not it's Presbyterian or independent or whatever, there are definite pressures that can create these blow-ups. Nevertheless, I feel like I was, partly because of my personality, partly because of, my personality means temperament, mm -hmm. not my virtue. This is not sanctification. Mm -hmm. This is just your temperament. My temperament didn't make me as prone to it. Mm -hmm. And so I rolled my eyes at it. I didn't like it. I, I, I thought it was bad news, and I thought, frankly, it was going to bear bad fruit and so I sit around in my heart, you know, very sadly saying, I told you so. Hmm. But no, no schadenfreude because the, the devastation is just awful. So that brings another question for me. Because another thing that happens there in the late 90s, and I believe City to City was connected to this, uh, or maybe was even kind of came out of this. You had organizations like Leadership Network looking at evangelism and church growth and the different yes, right. phenomenon that were impacting all of this. And so there was this shift that said, hey, the denominational sort of church planting efforts don't seem as effective as affinity-based partnerships, you know, yeah. that, you know, a Methodist church and a Baptist church that are trying to reach the same town, you know, might have more in common than two Baptist churches or whatever. And so, so they facilitated the formation of a lot of different networks that were more loose, that weren't denominations, that didn't have these accountability structures. I'm curious, you you know, was that a mistake? Is that something that, has that burned itself out? I mean, it seems like that's pretty strong still that you have, whether it's ARC or Acts 29 or City to City, you know, a lot of church planning seems to continue to sort of run through that network-based, loose accountability, yeah. high affinity kind of structure. Yeah, I no, I, I would. My answer there is mixed. Here, I mean, um, what I mean by that is, I do think that on the one hand, city to city, for example, you're right. City to city comes out of this. City to city would prefer, greatly prefer that the that the local church that we're trying to help get started is part of a denomination. That they're in some kind of a not just a loose network where there's no accountability, but a, a real ecclesial connection of some kind that's what we would prefer and yet so here's the other side and yet you might say the denomination exclusive approach to church planting where the denomination does absolutely everything well i don't think this is helpful it's, it's way better for example to take the methodist and the presbyterian and the charismatic here's here's 10 people they're all planting churches in the city bring them together Train them together. Let them know each other. Let them knock the rough edges off of each other. Let them see how each person's denomination actually has got strengths and weaknesses, frankly. Inevitably. You cannot do without denominations, I don't believe. I'll just call them ecclesial connections, communions, real communions, not just loose networks. You really can't do without them. And yet every one of them have limitations. 
every one of them have strengths and, and weaknesses. And so you just, and there's no way to avoid it by saying, I'm just like, we're going to be non-denominational. Then you have your own problems. So what we would like to see is a way more collaboration, way more networking to get your church planning done. What, that's really, really important in a city. And to work with others to, to reach the city, but you yourself have that ecclesial connection. There's a certain sense in which denominations give you your white corpuscles. You know what white corpuscles are? They, they, they fight infections. But you almost need it to be interdenominational and, you know, in order to get your red corpuscles. Denominations are best at accountability and keeping down, you know, heresy and infection. But they tend to be, frankly, myopic. In other words, uh, let me be, let me be way of simplifying. So Presbyterians have got doctrine and they've got deep exegesis and and the Baptists have got outreach and activation, you know, evangelism and the charismatics, and maybe the Anglicans have got worship. We've got, you know, and they've all got their own vitamin that is their specialty and that the other denominations actually just will never do as well. They, we're all in catch-up. And yet, unless you're really knowing one another really well, you're not going to be able to, you might say, learn from the other denominations and traditions so that you can you can create an, an, an oxygen-rich version of your own denomination. Hmm. So that's the reason I said my response to you is mixed. Mm -hmm. The reason for the networking thing is the freedom and the, and the, and the cross-pollination and, and how innovative it is, and the denominations tend to be very plotting. And I agree with that. Mm -hmm. But then to say that you shouldn't be part of a denomination doesn't work. Now, the only problem with that is there can be a clash. Mm -hmm. Very often the denomination wants more control, I'll just give you a real quick one is um, in New York City right now, I think if you're going to do an evangelistically based church plant, you need to give people a good two years almost before they can get a, a, a church, a, you know, a, a worship service up. You need to start with a church planter and maybe a few other lay people and you just evangelize your eyes out for 18 months until you develop 50, 60, 70 people who are seekers or people have become converted and they're bringing people it takes a couple years and then you can when you launch a a service you are really reaching new people now the fast way to get a church up is to is to launch big with with great music and everything and the reason why you go big real fast is you actually just draw people from all the other churches mm -hmm. you know, you're basically it, Kathy calls it, my wife calls it, the circulation of the saints. <laughs> All you're doing is just drawing people from elsewhere. Right. Now, here's the problem. In New York City, we work with all these people from these different denominations, help them start their churches, but they're getting institutional pressures from their own denominations to go big fast and to get off the dole and to not need, a, we don't, you know, you don't need financial help anymore because you already have 150 people and you're self-supporting. That's what they want. And yet the church planners on the ground realize through their network, they're, they're working with all these other church planners from all these other denominations, and they're working with experts and city-to-city -city people who have planted many churches here, and they're realizing what my, what my denomination wants and what I really need to be doing are not the same. Hmm. And then that's a problem. And yet we would never say, oh, just drop, you know, see, this is what Mark Driscoll would do. You quit that denomination. You just, you fire your elder. You do whatever it takes to grow. And that's no, you. Sorry, in the end, that you'll it'll right. You'll blow up. So related to that, then, like 
Redeemer did grow. Redeemer did blow up. And you planted and, and pastored like a really big, you know, a really big church, a church of significant amount of influence. And, you know, even before you published your first book, you know, I was part of a, of a church plant and a church planting church. And, you know, I remember that Redeemer, you know, the spiral bound Redeemer church planting manual being handed around like it was this secret stash of insights from Gandalf in New York City who'd figured it all out. Um, and so you had a reputation before the books came out and before kind of some broader um, uh, stuff happened as having unlocked a few things. I'm curious, given that you've got some antipathy towards that culture of leadership and, and, and growth and all of that, how do you think about Redeemer's growth, how it happened? Boy. Well, now, wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> I do remember this, that when people started showing up because Redeemer had grown, they were saying, well, we're, we, you know, we've tried the Willow Creek model. We want to try the Redeemer model. And I said, we're not a model. See, so, for example, I did know the, the Willow Creek models. They were saying, so I see that you do traditional music in the morning and you do jazz at night. And you do jazz, not contemporary Christian music, but jazz. So that's the model. I said, no, it's not. My gosh, I mean, it, Nashville, I'm not sure jazz is going to work in Nashville. I mean, what, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what is the model? And so we, had, we ended up coming up with something we called DNA, which was a set of emphases, but not programs. And we tried to say it has a lot to do with a number of things. One is one of the reasons, Mike, for example, one of the reasons, uh, and when I started, this was kind of radical, late 80s, 90, early 90s. I wore a suit every Sunday, and we sang traditional hymns every Sunday. And we saw a lot of people become Christians. A lot of people. Uh, in fact, it was really remarkable. It was a couple of years there, but I call it revival. And when people showed up to try to say, okay, I remember one person actually said, where are the dancing bears? How do you get people here? And I said, the, I said, the reason why I've deliberately not done in the morning anyway, we start having an evening service and we use more contemporary music. The reason why I deliberately did, you know, hymns and, and suit and all that is I said, the key is if you show people that the gospel is intellectually respectable, that it actually exposes the real deep needs of their hearts, it offers something that they've been looking for all their lives. And that then it's also believable. So it's the, I'm taking this from uh, Blaise Pascal's famous Ponce 187, where he says, show them that Christianity is respectable, then that it's desirable, so that they wish it was true. Mm. Then show them that it is true. In other words, respectable, desirable, believable. If you do that in terms they can understand, it doesn't matter how you're dressed. And it doesn't matter what the music is. They will get converted, and then they'll bring their friends. And I said, I, one of the reasons why, you know, and I've never been a you know, cool-looking person anyway, one of the reasons why I got up there looking like, you know, a little bit like a, you know, combination of college professor, that sort of thing, and therefore there was no model. It was how do you get the gospel into people's lives? How do you bring it into connection to their hearts in such a way they say, you know, what for 1 Corinthians 14, the secrets of their hearts will be revealed. And they'll fall down and they'll say, God is here. Mm-hmm. And you basically had to know your audience. You had to know what, what, where they were struggling. You had to know where their prejudices were. 
And then the, here's the second thing. So first of all, you had to have that incredible message. The second thing is you had to create a Labri kind of community in which non-believers felt like they were ratified participants. What do you mean by that? That means that they felt they felt authorized to be there. Mm-hmm. They felt that they were not trespassers. They felt welcomed. They felt that they were expected. And they were not under pressure to immediately, you know, bow the knee. And that's how Labrie was. Labrie was, in its earliest days, a, a, a genuinely, a, a real Christian community where you had preaching and, and, and worship and prayer. But it was also a place where non-Christians were expected and they were, people were very, very patient with them and didn't, you know, condemn them and didn't uh, make jokes about them or insist that um, they immediately toe the line. And then the preaching basically has to do what I would call capital conversion. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that people need to say, you, uh, you, you understand my world. See, I, I come in as an evangelical born-again preacher, which means I got no cultural capital. I'm not, you know, you see, in other words, I'm, uh, liberal churches have big, beautiful buildings, and they say all the right things because they, you know, they, their, their political views are the same. So here comes this evangelical church with all these wrong beliefs. But what I can do is I can get cultural capital. If, first of all, I show that I've read the stuff that they've read better than they have. And if I show that actually I know what they're going through, and I can articulate their objections better than they can articulate them. And I can also articulate where their heart is. Then what that does is it, it, it means suddenly I get the I get the cultural capital. So basically, I so when I did that to people, they were looking for a program. When they said, where's the Redeemer model? Uh, I said, well, we are big on the arts. There's no doubt about it. And Mike, you know that. But it's New York. It, that was easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody, you know, I had 400, at one point, by the way, Mike, you might know, uh, Tom Jennings told me, he says, you have 400 full-time professional musicians going to Redeemer. Hmm. (laughs) Pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we had great music. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we had great art and all that stuff, but that was just being true to our community. You know, you call, if you want to call it contextualization, it's just being, just being New Yorkers. Mm hmm. Which I guess you might say was a third thing. Sure. That we were not culturally, unnes- that Don Carson would say we were not unnecessarily culturally alien. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, we were just trying to be like the rest of the New Yorkers in the sense of the fact that we cared about artistic uh, excellence. In other words, you couldn't come and do something musically unless you were really good. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much you love Jesus. You really have to be good. In, in that sense, were, were we kind of New Yorkers? Yeah, rather than, yeah. We were, but not in any unusual way. Mm-hmm. So there was the contextual, there was the ratified participant, the idea of an open community where people felt they could be. And then there was, frankly, that cultural capital conversion that happened through the way in which we brought the Christian message home to people. And you know, the people who showed up and asked what's the what's secret sauce, mm-hmm. and they were looking for something like the Willow Creek thing, they were pretty frustrated. How would you say because it was successful and there was growth, how would you say it was different from the models that are highly programmatic, you know, growth on steroids? Like, could you boil down a little bit, like what the, what the contrast would be from, you know, this sort of highly message specific or, or 
or communication specific, context specific, versus the 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 amped up, you know, highly celebrative, highly programmatic, platform driven, right? Okay, uh, here's I'm going to give you one real big difference between Redeemer and the other churches you're talking about, and here's where I really, I don't want to say I sympathize with with Mark, but when I listen to your your podcast, I, it made perfect sense. In the early days of a new church, decisions are made very quickly because the only person empowered to make the decision is basically you, if you're the church planter. And then a very small number of people, all of whom have been attracted to the church because of you. There's What happens when you're starting a church is there's a self-selection process that isn't true for anybody else who comes later on. If the church continues and there's a second pastor and a third pastor, they never have what the first pastor had. What the first pastor has is people basically select themselves out if they don't like the pastor. They don't like the preacher. They don't like the leader. They just go somewhere else. So the only people who are there are people who just think, you know, they kind of worship the ground you walk on. And in the, so for at least a year or two, you just make decisions like this. And you can respond. And a lot of the growth comes from the fact that you can very quickly make a decision and say, there's a wave here. Let's catch that. Uh, we can, I can hire that staff person just exactly at the right time. Now, what happens is as the church grows, you have more and more empowered people, people who have given their money, people who have spent their time, and they now feel like, I, I, I have a right to a say. And that's exactly what happens when, when that starts to slow the growth down. You have more empowered people, and, and decisions take longer, and you have more people who are able to push back and you have to do more negotiating, and it does slow the growth down. And it also um, makes the whole thing feel more like an institution instead of a platform for a particular personality. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, you have to decide. I had to decide. Uh, it was very difficult for me because I was, it was about mid, you know, I'd say about five years in, I realized uh, either I'm going to have to, oh, I need fewer elders, or I need to, I need to get rid of a couple of these elders, or I have to, you know, streamline things. Now, on the one hand, I'm a Presbyterian, and actually, there's a limit to what I can do. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of rules that I can't change. And secondly, I've told you that the two things that happen is my personality is such as I tend to be a peacemaker. I that does make me, by the way, overly sensitive to criticism. It's a flaw. Hmm. but partly because I want people to be happy and therefore if they criticize me I feel like people aren't happy I'm not thick skinned and so when people would I mean I've learned through with God's help to handle yeah I was going to say that's surprising to me just knowing you're sort of mostly from your public persona that you would say that you're not thick skinned because I mean you weighed into a lot of stuff and Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Because well, you know you, in you've you've said it before. Like in New York, you're a fundamentalist, and everywhere else, you're a liberal. Um, so you oh, I'm to... terribly. Yeah, I mean, I get lots of. I mean, unbelievable amount of criticism. Yeah, but it's I've gotten better. But you know what? Here's what my wife would know: it's sanctification. It's not that Tim just learned how to. Uh, but it's it. I I it was hard fought, Mike. Uh, see, there's a couple. One is some people they don't care. You know, because I, I know I'm right. You know, Donald Trump. I don't care. Mm. <laughs> I know I'm right. Mm. That's it. Uh, on the other hand, there's that kind of personality. And then there's the other kind of personality where you actually harden yourself. And the way to do that 
is to, is to look down at people. It's not so much that you're confident. Like uh, It's like you start saying, who cares what this rabble thinks? And you, one of the ways that you deal with the hurt of the criticism is you, is you say, consider the source. You know, they're, they're stupid, they're idiots, forget them. And either of those, by the way, either I am so sure I'm right that I don't care what people say, or I am so sure everybody else is stupid. Those are non-Christian ways to, uh, you know, get yourself not feeling that criticism. And so partly because I tried the sanctification way, which means I always struggled, I really wanted people to feel like this is my church. So I, I, did, I couldn't just run people off. I just couldn't do that. I don't want to do that. And it was also wrong biblically. It was impossible Presbyterianishly. <laughs> and it was also uh, not something that I like doing anyway. And so what happened was Redeemer did slow. We became more bureaucratic. We became more institutional. Sometimes that frustrated me. Sometimes it frustrated, frustrated other people. It's the thing that Mark wouldn't allow to happen. Right. But you see what happened was we stayed in institutions, so we have lasted. And Redeemer is continuing on now as a network. It's a long story. I can tell you about that. But that pressure to say, I, in order to keep growing, I've got to keep that ability to make snap decisions means i got to keep all the power. I cannot share power. And that, that is a fatal mistake. I look back on it. I lost a lot of power as I let the church grow. And I, I mean, I also let the... I, I allowed more people to have power. So to make a decision, I, I had more people that had a way in. And I look back on it, I don't think it was wrong. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be the, I mean, not just with Mark, I mean, that just seems to be the pivot point with so many leaders throughout this moment. Can you make that pivot to a kind of different phase of ministry, different phase of leadership? I think about right. all of that. There's a great, there's a great scene and a great episode of the West Wing that's kind of literally about this whole thing, you know, this election campaign is over and one of the characters who like ran the campaign and, and ran himself ragged, you know, 100 hours a week or whatever screaming at everybody and and, and to sort of make the thing happen um, they've won and they're in transition and he hasn't transitioned the way he's leading and operating and everything and he just wreaks havoc and um you know, it's at one point, you know, he gets pulled aside and this guy says, look, you you have to make this transition. We're not campaigning anymore. We're governing. And it just struck me how the parallel, like you, once the church is established and there's a certain kind of critical mass, the entrepreneurial energy that it does take to get the thing off the ground has to pivot because it can't, it's like the larger mass can't contain it exactly. in a stable way anymore. Well, you, you know, I would say this. There's institutionalism, where an institution becomes so ingrown and, and and filled with turf conscious people, and it it really loses it. Institutions have a job, and so the job might be, for example, to let's say a school, the job is to educate, you know, kids, but the institution also has teachers and administrators, and when the institution starts to exist for itself instead of for the kids. You're into institutionalism when it when it loses its vision. On the other hand, if you don't have an institution, it doesn't last. If it's just always you know growing, and because somebody doesn't allow traditions, institutions have to have traditions, 
and a certain number of empowered players. And there's there's ways in which things are done. So what you want is an institution that that keeps some movement dynamics. It, at pure movement, actually burns itself out. An overly institutional institution, I guess you could call it, loses its reason for existence. It becomes just there, just to propagate itself. It basically just tries to give the benefits for the internal people, and we all know that that can happen. So, what you want for a church to be is that balance between institution and a movement. And that's what I, I rather than trying to keep it the movement, I tried to find that balance. And I'm not sure how I, well I did, but that was the answer. We'll be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. All of us walk around with something we need to get off our chest. Maybe you're upset about something or something's making you sad. You've got frustrations at work or at home. And if you keep those things bottled up, it can affect all of us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get those things off your chest and figure out how to work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash RiseAndFall today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash RiseAndFall. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So you, you meet Mark in the late 90s, a couple of years yep. of overlap there. Fast forward five, six years, and you launch the Gospel Coalition. Right, and he's back. And he's back. <laughs> um, you know, what that, and I think probably more than anywhere else, I mean, that's where people talk about you platformed Mark, you know. Right. And, and people, I mean, all the way through this, you know, production of this podcast, you know, there were several names that people kept pinging me with, like, well... Does, you know, what, is, what does Tim Keller think about platforming Mark Driscoll? What does, you know, so-and-so, a number of others? Um, how, how do you reflect on that? And how, 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 did, that? Yeah. how did Mark become a part of that? I'm not sure who invited him. Um, remember this, in the very beginning of an organization, there isn't anybody who actually are the gatekeepers. When you're getting into a room, you invite people, Don Carson invited people, and some of those people invited people. That's all I remember. I mean, uh, and you get in the room and you talk about the vision for an organization and you look at each other and then decide, do I want to be in this group? 
in a certain sense, everybody's a gatekeeper. So it's not like Don and Tim decided who to be in the Gospel Coalition. We were the founders in the sense of we were the drivers and we pushed the thing. But basically, we had, um, you know, we invited people, invited people. We're looking for people with basic affinity. We're looking for people who are broadly reformed, who were, uh, you know, in for uh, Don had his list. I had my list. You know, Don expository preaching, high view of the word, and all that. I had my list about, you know, trying to engage the culture. But we we so we tried, and I don't remember who invited. Mark, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me because he was a big noise and and uh, seemed to be doing well out there. And so when we formed, we all looked at each other and uh, didn't know each other extremely well. I probably knew a little bit more about Mark and the brashness because I was there when you know it's in the, it's in your podcast when Mark was making claims that were probably just not true about reading a book a day and. And, um, there was just, there was that uh, brashness is probably the word, but I wasn't sure when he joined that that was a sign of some kind of major character flaw or anything like that. So we didn't know. And so we all joined up. So that's, that's, first of all, keep that in mind. That is that I didn't make the decision to have him on, but rather we all made a decision to, to start the thing together. Number one, number two about Mark is that Mark had the platform. We had no platform. And so did John Piper. In other words, in that entire group, the only people that had a platform, the idea, it's anachronistic thinking, excuse me, I'm sorry, interrupting myself. It's anachronistic thinking that Gospel Coalition had a platform, had this big website and all this stuff, and we invited people like Mark Driscoll onto it. No, Mark had a website. Mark had an enormous platform, and so did John Piper. And the Gospel Coalition had nothing (laughs) <laughs> we had nothing we had uh, in fact don and i were so f- oh mike we are so foresighted our understanding of the gospel coalition was it was going to be an annual pastor's conference our original thought was more like tg t4g that's that's what we really thought we were going to do we were just going to have a pastor's conference uh I, I, frankly i'll just say i remember don saying to me you know a little broader than t4g you know, a little bit, you know, a little, little broader. And he also said less celebrity focused. Hmm. So T4, we, we knew T4G was started starting at the same time and we invited them all. You know, they were all part of Gospel Coalition. And we felt like T4G was a little more celebrity oriented. Let's, let's bring in the big names with the, with the big books and all that. And it was a little more, uh, a, little, a little more combative sounding, just a wee bit more like, you know, a little more saber rattling, just a bit. It was small. We love these guys. They're very dear friends. But Don was saying, we're not the same. We're going to be doing a lot more than just having a pastor. But we, we, but nevertheless, it, originally we thought we were going to be at the pastor's conference. Then we said, well, maybe we need to have a website. So we weren't really thinking this out very well. But frankly, it was, I would say when we started the website, it was John Piper, particularly Justin Taylor, coming over from Desiring God. And it was Mark driscoll's uh you know connection that created the the gospel coalition platform so maybe that's even more evil like <laughs> may, it could be that in people's minds it would be very evil if, if gospel coalition actually platformed mark driscoll which people say all the time tim keller platform the reality is <laughs> that mark driscoll platformed us and and john 
Piper platform does and created the platform, which we didn't have. And um, maybe that's more evil, <laughs> but that's the truth. And then when, when, as, as time went on and the, uh, one, one of the big, here's the third thing with the gospel coalition, it's not a denomination. So when, when bad behavior, not just Mark Driscoll, but also James McDonald and also CJ and people like that, when, when bad behavior began and bad reports began to come out about members of the council, we really weren't, frankly, we hadn't thought out, what do you do about that? We, we, we had bylaws. We had nothing about anything like that. And, and we were also trying to figure out, well, what the heck are we? Okay. The idea that Tim and Don ran the thing, we really didn't. Mm-hmm. Nobody really ran the thing. It was really a fellowship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we've been bloodied, rightly. In other words, people who want to say, you, 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 you brought all these folks together, and then you didn't really have a good way of exercising any kind of, well, what do you say? You can't say discipline because we're not a church, but some kind of oversight. And I do think that's right. So, no, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, am, I, I reject the idea that we platform Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll platformed us. But once the bad behavior showed up, I do think the Gospel Coalition wasn't really able to know what to do because we, nobody felt that I, I, have, I have the job to um, pull a plug or, or get, even get a process started. So fortunately, they voluntarily, you know, left because they realized that they were not there. People like James McDonald and the uh, and Mark, they left because they could tell that we were very unhappy, that most of us were very unhappy with it. <laughs> but that's that's probably there should have probably been something more formal than that. Yeah, I think I think what's interesting is it does come back to this kind of denominations versus networks thing because there's the perception of much more sort of institutional strength and architecture Mm -hmm. than was really there i mean there was nothing it sounds like there were no mechanisms at all you know i think that's fair okay you know what touche touche i think that's right i do think gospel coalition participates in i'm by the way i'm very happy about the gospel coalition overall i think it's done a lot of great work so i'm not but I do think that there is a, um, it participates in the weakness of the evangelical parrot church empire. And it's been a problem ever since George Whitfield. The parrot church empire. And by the way, in my denomination, there's plenty of people that just feel like uh, Tim, you know, I, I won't mention anybody's name, but I, mean, I got some really good friends that are just saying, why in the world did you ever get involved with the Gospel Coalition? Because it's just a, it's just a kind of it's a evangelical parachurch network that doesn't have any accountability, and the problems you've had are because it's just it's not a real, it's not a, it's not ecclesial, it's a voluntary association. But th- when you push those folks, are you against every voluntary association? You're not against that. I mean, you know, it, but but the, it does participate in the problem. You're right. The same. Yeah. It does. I mean, I just think it's an interesting. You know, it's it's a reflection of the reality of the way, I don't know, for lack of a better term, sort of Christendom thinks about churches, leaders, those associations. There's an assumption yeah. of a of a kind of accountability and knowledge and all that. It's just not, not there. there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And now we see it. Yeah, that's one of the reasons for the blowups. Yes. Yeah. But is the evangelical world not the mainline world that has always seen 
the the main carriers of ministry would be would be these these parachurch organizations, the evangelical empire. And I, I do think that there's great weakness. It's it's a fruit of revivalism. I, I, just a great book to read, Mike. If you haven't read it before, it's even though it's a, it's not a page turner because it's academic. But uh, Nate Hatch's book, um, you know, the democratization of American Christianity, the democratization. The revivalism was really kind of anti-ecclesial. It was put all the emphasis on the individual and the dynamic individual and the individual who's got a charisma and that they just band together and they just do it. And they, they that way they, they do end runs around the accountability structures of congregations and denominations. And guess what? Upside and downside. In fact, I just say originally the Baptists eventually became a denomination. But originally, I'll just show you the upside and downside. If you were on the if you were in Kentucky and you were on the frontier and you became a Christian and now I want to be a minister, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the Congregationists would send you back to the East Coast for seven years of liberal arts education. And the Baptists would just lay hands on you and say, <laughs> You're a minister. Now, what's the advantages and disadvantages? The Baptists grew like crazy because they were of the people, right? But they didn't have the theological training. It was incredible thinness. And a lot of evangelical anti-intellectualism comes from that move. The reason why evangelicals are large, the reason why they're so powerful in a certain sense, and why they're so individualistic, anti-intellectual, anti-elitist, anti-accountability, is because of that move. And it's basically the fruit of revivalism. Yeah, that, so, okay, so that's, that's really interesting. I had, I had not thought in those terms. What I had thought in terms of, and, and I know this is something that you've talked about, you know, uh, ad nauseum probably, is the ways that, that secularism has, has shaped the church yeah. in ways yeah. that incline it towards cult of personality as well. Because we do have this, you know, we do have this milieu that we come up in where spirituality is just difficult. It's difficult on the, the structures of the imagination. And so when these characters come along that have the kind of sort of confidence and absolute authority of a, of a guy like Driscoll who's heard the voice of God and knows how you're supposed to live your life, you know, um, and with that really strong declarative authority, I mean, there's something really... I think, I think it's compelling in the same way that a guy like Trump showing up saying, I alone can fix it, has a has an authority that that we crave that's been undermined in other other ways in our culture, right? That is just as important as the 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 evangelical revivalist background. The other thing is you've got basically the modern self, you know, uh, the therapeutic self, and the therapeutic self is that the your your, your individual needs are trying they they they're preeminent that nobody can tell you who you are. You have to decide truth for yourself. You have to decide. You have to look inside yourself and come up and become a self-actualized individual because you are living true to who you know yourself to be and to, and to what you know the truth to be because you found it inside. It's all incredibly, um, you know, read Habits of the Heart by uh, Robert Bella, expressive individualism. By the way, by, gosh, I'm... I'm, I'm I told you I wasn't going to go on long. There's a chapter in there called, on Sheilaism. Habits of the Heart back in the 1980s was talking about this rise of expressive individualism of, of 
the therapeutic self. They're, they found a woman who they said, what's your religion? And she says, well, my religion is I listen to a voice in my own heart as to what is right and what is wrong. Her name was Sheila, by the way. And she says, so my religion, I, I, I have a name for my religion. I just, it, it's, it's Sheilaism. She said, I worship that little voice in my heart that tells me what to do, and I live in accordance with that. And so that's my religion, is Sheilism. There's only one person in my religion, it's just me. And it's a classic, by the way, and I do think it, it says, says, says something. So when along comes somebody who says, you know, I have looked into my heart and I know the truth, and they seem like the kind of person you want to be yourself. Uh, Missy Wallace, who uh, works for City City, she wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition on don't, see, don't, don't see, necessarily seek your passion in order to find your work. You know, people say, I need to find my, my work needs to be also my passion. Whatever my work is, it has to be something I really love doing, something I, my passion. And she says, that would be great. <laughs> but it, it's not the main thing. And boy, she, she says her own children still give her pushback on this because she says that is not the way the bible looks at it. the high you should get from work is that your work contributes to the common good and it really helps people that should be a passion but whether or not the very thing you're doing necessarily is just exciting every day i just love going to the office code i just love it if you look, realize what i'm doing is actually helping people what i'm doing is making a living for my family then does it have to be your passion she says no and the idea that you has to be just incredible. I have to be so fulfilled in every part of my life. She says, that's not the Bible. That's, that's, that's the modern self. So you're absolutely right. That contributes very much into what's going on, too. And unfortunately, the, uh, the, there's a certain kind of figure that makes people feel like there's a self-actualized individual. When actually what they should see, if you're a minister, is just a, a, a man or a woman under God. But the other thing that I noticed and nobody talks about it anymore the way they used to, is the mistaking of gifts for grace. And that is that there's a tendency to look at the spiritual gifts, let's say, are things like your preaching and your teaching and your administration and your leadership. And, you know, that, that's your talents as it is. It's really what you do. But spiritual graces, the fruit of the Spirit is what who you are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Right? It is absolutely natural in our culture, especially, especially in a therapeutic culture, especially in a consumer culture, especially in a um, technological culture, to not look at being, but look at doing. And so what's going on in the, a lot of these mega churches, frankly, in fact, everywhere, is what everybody's concentrating on is really not the character of the leaders, but the, uh, but the talent. I'll tell you a, a, a quick frightening story. Um, a minister had an affair with a woman in his congregation and, um, it eventually came out and, and of course it, it, uh, blew up everything. And I remember at one point I had breakfast with him and we were talking and for whatever reason, he was willing to talk a little bit about how he maintained the ability to um, lead a big congregation while he was having an affair for a pretty good amount of time. He never told me how long it was, but it wasn't like a, wasn't brief. And he said, here's what would happen. On Friday and Saturday, as he was working on his sermon, his conscience would just start killing him. How can you get up there and preach 
when you're doing this. And then he would say, on Monday, he would say, I'm going to, on Monday, I'm going to call her in. It'll be over. And that would give his conscience just enough room so he could actually write the sermon and do the sermon without feeling like a hypocrite. And then his gifts would kick in. And even though his heart was far from God and he was feeling guilt and his prayer life wasn't terrible and all that, what the situation brought out his gifts. He was a great, he was a great speaker. And he saw people crying and he saw people afterwards saying, I came to faith in Christ. And on Monday he said, God's really still with me. Okay. That's mistaking the act, the, the operation of gifts for the work of spiritual fruit and grace in your life. And this is happening all over the place. And here's the frightening thing. The people in closest to the person, they see the lack of fruit. The people out here can't, they can only see the gifts. So they see the lack of fruit. They see the, you know, the grumpiness or the abusiveness or the, uh, the anger or the, in, the, uh, the pride or the self-centeredness and all that. And they start to lose their respect for the leader. But the, as soon as they start to criticize the people out here who don't see that, they only see the gifts, they just attack anybody who criticizes, right? You saw that. And it's all, be, it's all because the gifts of grace thing, the people in close see the lack of grace. The people out here can only see the gifts. And unfortunately, very often the people up here who are trying to keep the operation going, they see the lack of grace, but they also know that they can't financially afford anything other than just keeping this person in power. So that's what, as I was listening to your stuff on Mars Hill, that was the other thing I wanted to say besides, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've mentioned a number of things here, but I thought that's something I needed to add. Yeah. I hope you find that helpful. No, it is really helpful. I, I know, I mean, one of the things I think a number of folks would love to hear you speak to, if, if there's anything to add to it, is, you know, how do you account for your own longevity in ministry? I mean, you've you've had a long run. You've done well, you know. We're <laughs> um, and I think a, a number of people look to you as somebody who's who's endured well and navigated a lot of this this stuff. When you speak to younger pastors and leaders like what are the things you would point to and say this is this is what's going to keep you from going to the zoo i think earlier on one of the things that helps you continue to grow in grace and not get frankly not get an inflated ego not um you know get blind spots i think earlier on hebrews three thirteen fellowship and forgive me I'm so old that I'm going to quote this in the King James, which is, exhort one another daily, lest ye be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Which is it's a place where it says, you've got to have some people in your life who exhort you daily because sin will always blind you. The deceitfulness of sin always blinds you. So who is it in your life that actually is authorized to come talk to you, you know, look at you, really, you know, break you over the coals if necessary. I think in the earlier days of my ministry, that was extraordinarily important. It's awfully helpful if one of those people that happens you happen to be married to, because they can see things that nobody else can see. But I had some others, okay? As time went on, though, here's what you have to, what has to happen. You can hide, even from people like that. I realized that 
you know, midway, you can, you can, you can still do bad things. You can still have an affair. You can still do things. Still get hooked on pornography. You can hide. Um, and um, also, and here's another problem: is that it's very difficult to make friends like that when if you lose them, if somebody dies or somebody moves away or that kind of thing. It's very difficult to uh, in your 50s and 60s and 40s, 50s, 60s to kind of go out and get another person like that. And therefore, all of the prayer life. I'm sorry. It's it's and it's not just praying about things. Communion with God. Read John Owen's little book. Start with the abridged edition. John Owen's little book, uh, A Communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Leave out the stuff on the Song of Solomon. <laughs> when he goes off for pages and pages expounding the Song of Solomon on why this describes Jesus. Apart from that, I mean, that book is unbelievable. I just reread it recently. And it talks about the purpose of prayer is to actually have the love of God shed abroad on your heart. I mean, to actually have it, to actually see his face, to actually sense the grace of God. I mean, what he says is you have communion with the Father in his love, with the Son in his grace, and with the Holy Spirit in his comfort. And there actually has to be a genuine experiential life, not just say your prayers, not just read your Bible. It, you, it, and you have to be able to also take, you need to be finding your most, your deepest besetting sins. It's called mortification. That mortification is, that's an old Puritan word, that does not mean repenting for something you've already done. No, no, no. Mortification is identifying that your besetting sins, that, that, and you're going to try to weaken them before they lead to actual behavior. And over the years, only with lots and lots of communion with God, do you identify your three or four or five most besetting sins and find ways to apply, and, and what Owen would say, you have to apply Jesus to them. You know, you have to say, in what way does Jesus actually, looking at who Jesus is and what he's done, how does that weaken this, this, this inordinate desire in my heart? How does this reorder the loves of my heart? You have got to have a vibrant prayer life. And if you were too busy for that, and I have to say, the more successful your church is, the more likely you're gonna to feel too busy for it. And it's that's deadly. That's the other thing. It is utterly deadly. Chuck DeGroat and I were talking about this a couple couple weeks ago. Like we're so attuned to having a strategy, a technique for everything. But when it comes to this stuff, like the the boring but true answer is, um, man, if you, if you want to guard your heart from this stuff, like live the Christian life, <laughs> right? Like yeah pray and seek the Lord's face and be humble and confess your sins and, you know, be killing sin or it'll be killing you and all that stuff. Yeah, I don't know if I would even, I could I'd just tell you this, is the, the, the only real accountability that, that just cannot be um, avoided is when you've experienced God's presence and his love. And it is so delicious that you say, I just don't, it doesn't happen every day. It, it, it just, you know, nothing like that. But the idea is that I do not want to lose that. Hmm. I can't lose that. That's the only accountability I know. Even accountability with my wife, I could lie. There is no other accountability. And even just a prayer life in which you pray, I, I read my Bible and pray every day. 
Mm-hmm. The real question is, are you having fellowship with God or communion with God? Uh, and do you sometimes commune with God in his love, with Christ and his grace, and with the Holy Spirit and his comfort? Do you? And if you do, that's the thing you say, I cannot live without that. Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced, written, and mixed by Mike Cosper. This episode was edited by TJ Hester. Our associate producers are Joy Beth Smith and Azure Phelps. Music on this episode is by Kate Siefker and Dan Phelps. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Kate Lucky. CT's editor-in-chief is Timothy Dalrymple. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.